Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What's up, everyone? How are we doing this week? Let me know. I want to know how every one of you is doing this week. Annie Costable here with another episode of Equal Play. This week, I spoke with three-time National Player of the Year, four-time All-American, two-time Olympic medalist, and three-time Olympian. Oh, that's a mouthful. One of softball's greatest pitching threats, Kat Osterman. That conversation is coming up later in the episode, so be sure to stick around. But first are this week's hottest headlines. Okay, so being honest with you here, I had already recorded this episode, uploaded it, gotten it all ready for you guys to listen and enjoy. And then some news happened as it does. Jay Cutler became the latest athlete to endorse 45 for re-election, and he did so with an Instagram post resharing Jack Nicholas's endorsement, saying, quote, never a doubt, and, quote, sign me up. Now, we do live in a country where people are supposed to have the freedom of speech, freedom to express themselves, etc. But, The problem here lies in the fact that these white athletes' decision to get political was met with support, while black athletes fighting for equity, equality, and the end of police brutality are told to shut up and dribble. Pause for emphasis there. The double standard is so obvious, and therein lies the problem. This episode is dropping four days before the election. And before we get to our other hot headlines of the week, I'll just say this. Vote. Get out and vote. All right, up next, we saw the Dodgers win their first World Series title since 1988 with a 3-1 to win over the Tampa Bay Rays in Game 6. But The bigger news was Justin Turner being removed from the game after registering MLB's first positive test in 58 days. Turner was pulled mid-game and asked to isolate, but after the final out of the game, he returned to the field to celebrate with his team. He removed his masks, posed for pictures with his teammates and his wife, but one of the most concerning aspects of his decision to not only return to the field but remove his mask was that Dave Roberts, the Dodgers manager, who was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma 10 years ago, was sitting right next to him. The Dodgers president of baseball operations, Andrew Friedman, was asked about the situation after the game, and he said, quote, I haven't seen the pictures. I totally understand the question. If there are people around him without masks, that's not a good optics at all. The MLB has since made a comment regarding the situation. You can read more about this evolving story at thesuntimes.com slash sports. All right, in Bears news, I'm sure you all have already heard, and if you haven't, you may be living under a rock somewhere. But during the Monday night football broadcast and the Bears' 24-10 loss to the Rams, an odd comment was relayed by ESPN's Brian Greasy. Greasy shared comments Foles made during a production meeting Sunday during the fourth quarter, saying, we were talking to Nick Foles yesterday, and he said, quote, You know, sometimes play calls come in, and I know I don't have time to execute that play call. You know, I'm the one out here getting hit. Sometimes the guy calling the plays, Matt Nagy, he doesn't know how much time there is back here. Obviously, both Nagy and Foles were asked about it following the game, and they each had their own excuse for what was truly meant. Nagy said he was sure Foles would explain, and Foles confirmed the conversation but said it was misconstrued. You can read more about that situation and all the stories that followed at suntimes.com slash bears. Finally, the NWSL expansion draft will take place November 12th, and the Red Stars were able to secure full roster protection. Let me say that one more time for you. Full roster protection. 
but it did come at a steep price. Dame said during interviews earlier in the week that when it came to the idea of roster protection, quote, you don't know until you ask. He presented the idea to the NWSL and Racing Louisville FC, asking what Louisville would need in order for the Red Stars to remain untouched. And it took trading forward Savannah McCaskill and midfielder Yuki Nagasato, along with the fifth overall selection in the 2021 NWSL draft and an international slot for 2021 and 2022. Dames went on to say that the perception will be that he made this trade to protect Chicago's five allocated players, Julie Ertz, Alyssa Nair, Tierna Davidson, Morgan Gaucho, and Casey Short. But the reality is much deeper than that. They protected an entire core that they feel will get them back to the NWSL championship. You can read more about that at thesuntimes.com slash soccer. All right, I'm done wasting your time. Now, the interview you've all been waiting for, here is Kat Osterman. Kat, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. Of course. I mean, we would not miss out on an opportunity to sit down with one of the greatest. But first things first, you won the first Athletes Unlimited individual title. What was that experience like playing in this brand new league? that one is not only highlighting the best athletes in softball, but also had such an exciting format. Yeah. Um, you know, it's truly, I mean, an honor to be the first winner. Um, I went in with the intent of just being able to get game situations, obviously with the Olympics being postponed, but, um, even having an, a goal of finishing top four really, um, but with, like you said, the new format, you didn't really know going in how it was going to play out. Right. Um, so it wasn't one of those where like I really wanted to put my eyes on winning when I didn't know what the point system was going to look like um, until you're in it. But um, it was an incredible environment to be in. To be honest, they treated us 100% professionally. Um, everything was ran way, real smooth. Um, and, you know, I left there inspired by 56 other athletes, um, just not only on the field, but off the field. Uh, as much as I think we were all kind of weary of what it was going to be like having to live in a semi-bubble because of COVID, um, that was actually an advantage because we really got to know each other really well, where I think if, you know, we were in quote-unquote real world, you'd have the same group of friends going to eat and going here and there all the time. So um, it was actually really cool to to be able to be around different people each week and, and just at the time, downtimes we had, hang out with different people um, depending on like who was outside, who wasn't busy and those kind of things. Can you describe a little bit in detail what this semi bubble was like? Yeah. So, um, our CEO, John Patrickoff calls it the shield mainly because we had some, um, local like athletic trainers and stuff that were able to go home to their families. So they weren't, not everyone was hundred percent bubbled, but, um, as athletes, so we were allowed to ride three people in a car, windows had to be down, masks had to be on. Mm-hmm. Um, driver and two passengers but we could never go anywhere else other than our residence which half were at apartments and half were at um, a hotel mm-hmm. or to the facilities which is our dome that had like our weight room um the hitting cages and then obviously the field is in the same parking lot so literally for six weeks we could go two places and that was it um we had wild i know we had groceries delivered via instacart um if you wanted you know chipotle starbucks all that you Grubhub or not? Yeah, Grubhub, DoorDash, yeah. Uber Eats, you name it. Um, I used Uber Eats for the first time in my life. Which <laughs> all the younger players were like, "What? You don't do Uber Eats?" <laughs> I was in the car and go drive and get food. But um, but since then, I've used Instacart like at least five times since being home. Because I'm like, "Oh, you mean I can stay home and clean while somebody else does hey. my grocery shopping?" Sounds great. You not only became a champion, but you got introduced to this beautiful thing called Uber Eats. Yeah, but um, it was, you know, at first it sounded daunting, but um, at the same time, it gave us a chance to even, I say, you know, we all bonded at different times, but at the same time, I'm not an alone time person. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously had plenty of it. I did not have a roommate by choice, um, mainly originally because before we were we figured out what it was going to look like. My husband was going to come visit. So mm-hmm. um, I had a lot of alone time, but at the same time I was very productive with it. And, um, you know, thankfully I, it, thankfully I had it because otherwise I don't think um, I would have near, 
the ideas moving forward as I do right now um, to do out since I've uh, left my coaching job. I don't want to say it was perfect timing because that sounds like I'm glorifying, you know, this pandemic and I don't want to do that by any means. But as far as the way things worked out with the Olympics being postponed and AU coming in and giving you all this opportunity to, to play in such an exciting league, first question is when did you figure out you were going to participate in AU and then were you thankful that this experience did pop up in order to keep yourself kind of like you said getting the reps in uh during a summer that you were supposed to be competing in the Olympics right um yeah I don't try not to glorify the pandemic I just keep saying it It was the silver lining um of it all so we found out the Olympics were postponed about Mm mid-March not sure what our team was doing yet until probably about April. And then that's when your tour was postponed. Everything was pretty much um, on lockdown. And some of our other athletes had already signed on with athletes unlimited to do it after the Olympics. And of course I was going to be done playing after the Olympics. So I hadn't even listened to the whole presentation and all of that. And so um, beginning to mid April, I reached out to Gwen Speckis knowing she was one of the the player executive committee um, members And just said, hey, not sure y'all's plans, but um, I would love to be part of this. You know, is there a chance? And she's like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we'd love you to be involved. We're sending the national team invites out um, again this week since we know that, you know, time has changed. And so April is when I um, kind of started talking and and getting into, you know, all the, the conversations about what exactly it was, all the benefits. And my husband was all for it right away. Um. I had a little hesitation only in being away from my family for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was kind of why I quote unquote retired to begin with was <laughs> family time and being right. able to invest in, in my family. But um, at the same time, I couldn't pass it. I couldn't pass it up with the, with the opportunity to compete for five straight weeks with some of the best of the best. Um, it's an opportunity you can't really turn down. So um, I decided about mid April and um, thankfully I did because uh, it was just an experience. I don't hard to put into words, but mm-hmm. it was way more than anything I expected. Um, not just competing, but off the field, the people, the way it was run. Um, it just was, it was mind blowing how amazing it was. What do you think AU is doing and accomplishing for the sport of softball and also women's sports in general? Yeah, I think, well, first and foremost, they're giving us an, ex- an extremely professional platform to not only showcase our talents, but enable us to be able to um, provide and raise awareness for causes that are close to us. Mm-hmm. Um, I've said it a few times since um, Athletes Unlimited ended is that, you know, I've been, for, my cause was RBI Austin. I've been on the board for this organization for six years. I give my time, I obviously give my knowledge about softball. But as a female athlete, I can't turn around, you know, Houston Street's on the board with me, played baseball. We both, both played baseball and softball at Texas together. He's able to turn around and donate a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars to donate. Right. <laughs> I would love to, but right. I don't have that to donate. So Athletes Unlimited gave us the platform, too, to be able to finally financially give to, to organizations or causes that are close to our hearts. So mm-hmm. um, that was kind of the big piece for me um, on top of playing, obviously but was just being able to financially do something for something close to my heart, as opposed to just always just having to, I hate to say having to rely on the fact it's my time and my knowledge, because those are very important things, but you know, we'll see anything progress. It right. Unfortunately takes money, but um, so Athletes Unlimited is, you know, it gives us a platform to play very professionally. Um, I think the setup um, with the points and just kind of the, the twist on the scoring, so to speak, um, it engages some new fans. It allows people to be excited and, you know, follow every week because you never know, you know, with players changing teams, um, who's going to be playing when. So it's not just like, Oh, okay. They're playing on every Saturday. I'm only going to watch on Saturday. Well, Mm -hmm. um, you never know week to week. And, um, I think for female sports in general, now with volleyball and lacrosse starting, um, that same twist will hopefully allow some fans to be able to watch and, you know, I don't know much about lacrosse, but I sure I'm going to pay attention and figure out <laughs> what it is and how their scoring is going to take place and right. be able right. to follow because it's just a new, fun, exciting way to get fans engaged. 
did you gain any perspective, any different perspective that will benefit you in the 2021 Olympics? I mean, it's hard to ask you a question like that because you have so much experience in this sport. So it's like, what more can Kat learn? But did you, yeah, is there any perspective that you think will benefit you guys in the Olympics? Um, well, I think for me personally, it was, it was twofold. Um, one, I was able to kind of get my footing and, and hit my stride again, pitching in the circle. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't quite felt a hundred percent like myself, um, on tour up to that point yet. So to find that at AU and there were some games I felt like I was throwing as well as when I was 26, 27 again, which is an incredible feeling. Um, but to be able to find that, but then the second half is, I don't know that I've ever enjoyed playing as much as I did in those five weeks. Um, I've played a lot of softball and I don't think I've smiled and just purely enjoyed the game as much as I did um, at that time. And so I think being a little bit older and, and still knowing like how you have to put in hard work and I'll always be intense and focused when I'm playing, but being able to enjoy it while being intense and focused has never really been something um, I think I did, or at least didn't outwardly express it. And so being able to do that and, and get my teammates um, to see that, you know, I, I am enjoying it and I'm not just laser focused all the time um, is a, d- a different perspective. And I think something that benefits, especially with me playing um, on the national team with obviously a different generation of athletes. Right, right. It's so interesting to think about your journey in with USA softball and you were the youngest player on the 2004 team and now you're competing in this league and you come out the champion of a league where I'm sure you were playing with some some well I know you were playing with some extremely talented young stars what was that like for you to see that evolution in your career and now be the one that's passing down all of this information to these young these young stars Yeah, it's different. Um, When I was the youngest athlete, you know, I was kind of trying to be a sponge, but almost just there and was like, tell me what to do, where to be, and I'll get there. Like, just kind of a a puppy almost. Let me just follow whoever's ahead of me and get there. Um, But it was, I mean, it's fun being the oldest, to be honest. Um, You know, I get to make the grandma and the mom jokes, which are (laughs) all day at this point. But at the same time, you know, some of these athletes, they grew up watching clearly the heyday of softball, the 2000 from 05 to 08 is kind of when we were at our pinnacle. And um, for them to have seen that and for them to have the the fire and the passion to get our sport back to that point, um, it's nice to be able to, for me to be able to share what that experience was like and what I think it would, it will take for us to get back to that point. And Um, I kind of made that point in my speech after the championship ceremony was for us to get back to that point. Everyone who's playing professionally has to continue to play professionally. You have to figure out how to make ends meet if we want it to go, because when people file out too early, it starts to water down and then it picks up like to, to discontinue the roller coaster. We have to have people have continuity and continue to play. And um, so I challenged them on that, but I think um, for them, a lot of times it was just, fun stories I'm able to tell from, from back in the day. And, um, you know, sometimes being older, it's, they sing songs from SpongeBob and I think <laughs> of college when SpongeBob came out. So I definitely did not pay attention to that, but yeah, um, you know, there's, there's some cultural differences in the, uh, the age, the age range. <laughs> uh, but it, cultural differences, yeah, but it, it's fun. Yeah. I think one day I said something about share and someone was like share. And I'm like, Oh geez, go listen, go turn on share Pandora, please. And, and they're obsessed with TikToks. And I'm like, TikTok. I've, I've never filmed one. I finally got an account just to watch all of their silly antics, but. Um, <laughs> so Kat still hasn't filmed her own TikTok. You have not made a single one. Nope. Not even with anyone from AU while you guys were all together. No, I mean, they, AU did some TikToks with like, um, well, they're more like highlight TikToks. So I'm on theirs and we tried to, I don't think Kelsey Stewart ever published it, but the whole national team did one on Zoom. Like that was when we were in COVID, we had TED Talk Tuesdays. So someone always presented on something they're passionate about and Kelsey Stewart loves TikTok. So she taught us all the TikTok. Um, and we recorded it, but I don't know that it ever went by. Oh my gosh. So somewhere in the ether, there is an unpublished TikTok of the national team. We have to get our hands on that. Yeah. That has to get released. It was um, fun. 
backtracking just a little bit, I read that you started playing softball in first grade and quit to play soccer and basketball and then came back to softball. So can we just think about right now what the world would be like without Kat Osterman and in softball? What was the reason for quitting and trying these other sports and why did you come back to it? Um, well, I was a basketball player from third grade all the way through high school. So uh-huh. um, that runs in the family. And honestly, that was my first love. Um, if you had asked me probably prior to eighth grade, freshman year, well, I guess maybe freshman year of high school, I would have told you I was going to be a college basketball player. Um, uh-huh. But um, I played in first grade and two leagues had split. So like one big, one had gone off. So we had two smaller ones and the league I signed up with first or fifth graders were on the same team and it was kids pitch. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine being six year old first grader <laughs> compared to like 10, 11 year old fifth grader and having this kid throw at you. So it wasn't much fun. Um, I think I got stuck in the outfield. So I was probably chasing butterflies and picking flowers. Right. As we all were when we were playing softball at that age. Right. So I think I just kind of looked at my parents and was like, I don't really do anything. I don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, some friends and I had played, you know, we're, they, were, they were talking about making a rec soccer team. And so um, I joined that and I actually really loved soccer from an early age. Um, and then I played that for three or, three or four years. And to be honest, I ended up quitting that because I was good at goalie, but I hated goalie. <laughs> so um, I kind of looked at my parents and were like, I don't want to just stand on the goal. Like my mm-hmm. team, the ball stays on the other half field. I never do anything. I don't even get to go run around. Mm-hmm. I think some people might relish and love that role. <laughs> so you I, were really craving like activity. You didn't want to be stuck in the outfield and you didn't want to be in goal. I would, I would beg at halftime to like, can I play midfielder? Can I play a defender? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. At halftime we'll switch. And then they do the whole, Oh, it's a close game though. And you're our best goalie. So we need to keep you there in case they, a scoring attempt comes. And I'd be right. Like, uh, fine. Um, so yeah, in about the end, towards the end of my 10 year old year, um, going into 11, I kind of was complaining to my parents and my dad was like, well, do you want to try softball again? And I was like, sure. And so, uh, tried it and I enjoyed it. But then when, um, little league rules and our other two pitchers had used up their innings for the, the week, um, they, uh, they said, who wants to try? And I was like, I will. From the second I tried it, um, I loved it. I asked my dad for pitching lessons for my 11th birthday. Yeah. Um, Obviously, he obliged, and here we are today. Transitioning to your college career, you threw the first perfect game in Texas softball's program history. It's one of your many accomplishments in your career. But I listened to an interview of yours where you talked about pitching in this game and not realizing you were throwing a perfect game until it was over. And you often hear athletes talk about that being in this state of, of pure concentration, Zen calm, and not realizing what they're doing until it's done. Can you describe what that was like for you being in that place and accomplishing something so magnificent? I'll be honest. I think the concentration came because it was kind of cold too. <laughs> Every now and then they'll show a video or a picture of that game, but I have ear warmers on. So I was like, I think it was part of it was because it was freezing cold. Um, but I think as time went on, I was way more conscious of how games unfolded. And so a lot of times I would know um, what was on the line towards the end of the innings. But I think at that point, um, I'm pretty sure it was my sophomore year that that happened. And I, I was still trying to quote unquote find myself and just consistently put out the same performances as much as possible. And, um, on that day, I know we had a double header. And so it was like, okay, let's get through game one as successful as possible, set us up with some momentum getting into game two. But yeah, when you get in those pure concentration modes, it's almost like playing a video game, to be Mm -hmm. honest. It's like your pitches work the way you want them to. Like you can visualize where you want it to go. And it's almost like you're manifesting it happening because then it goes there. And, um, you know, if a ball does get put in play, your teammates obviously are most of the time paying attention to what's going on too. And, and they're going, you know, full speed to, to save the game as well and keep it, you know, people off base and stuff like that. But, um, for me, it's usually just, uh, my gut feeling on what I want to throw is, is correct. 
Um, you know, I was fortunate. They gave me the ability to shake off pitches at, a, at an early age in college. And um, not that I did it a ton, but a lot of times it's, I can't say it's um, calculated. It's just, mm-hmm. a good um, now as I've gone on, I've learned how to set things up and call games. But at that point it was just more of gut feelings of what worked. And so, you know, you trust your gut and you let things fly. It, it works out in your favor. So um, those moments are fun. Um, the unfortunate part is a lot of times you're in such concentration mode when people ask you <laughs> what it's like, you're like, right. oh, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember everything. Cause I was so focused one pitch at a time. Um, but I think that's also what we try to preach to kids is like one pitch at a time. And too often they can't get themselves in that, in that moment. But when you're in, in those states to where everything's kind of just working, you are, you're just going one pitch, next pitch, next pitch, and continuing to, to build on your momentum without thinking of what's gone on in the past. You were the only college player on the 2004 Olympic team where you helped the team win a gold medal. What went into not only making that team, but winning gold and doing it at such a young age? Yeah. So, um, start with making the team. Um, I made my first national team in 2001, three days or well, tryouts were like three days after high school graduation Mm -hmm. and having played on that team in 2001 and had, um, enough success to light a fire in me. Um, you know, I came home and talked with my dad and was like, I want to be on that 2014. Like, I think I can be on that 2014. Mm -hmm. You know, my dad was like, you're going to be young. I don't know if that's realistic, but you know what? All you can do is, is try. All you can do is work hard towards it. And so I think making that team was very, um, dependent on how I approached my first two years of college. Mm -hmm. And I will tell people all the time, um, I did not live college life the way most people live college life your first two years. Um, because I had that carrot dangling in front of me. And to me, that was more important than anything else. And so, um, I spent weekends where I would go throw to a net or I beg a catcher to come catch because I knew for me personally, taking off two both days of the weekend, wasn't going to work for me. Mm -hmm. Um, If I had to throw to a net, I'd go set it up, get a bucket and stay out there, um, and throw as much as possible. And then at the same time, you know, I just didn't let the social aspect of college, um, really kind of lure me from anything. I was always, running a little bit extra, um, not lifting extra. I was too skinny for that. Um, but just being conscious of the decisions I was making to put me in the best place possible, um, for mm-hmm. the national team. And then I was fortunate that at Texas, I got thrown into the fire as a freshman. Um, so I was forced to grow and deal with adversity real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know had I chose somewhere else to go, if that would have been the case. Um, but being able to deal with that adversity, I think helped me mature enough to be able to, um, no, going into 2004 tryouts that um, I was ready. And I think I proved, I probably proved that to coach Kendrea in 2003 at the Pan Am games. Um, he gave me the, right. ball for the championship game and I actually threw a perfect game or a no hitter against Canada. Right. Um, and that was kind of, I think that was my test without knowing it at the time. That was my test from him on, you know, can you handle the pressure? And mm-hmm. so um, went into 04 tryouts. I had a great tryout, but still just, holding my breath. Cause to me, it was easy for them to be able to say, you know what, you're just too young. Um, but thankfully they didn't, but I can say, I look back and I know I put every ounce of hard work I could into that during those first two years in college and just didn't let anything obscure that goal from my, from my view day in and day out. And then, um, going into what it took to win it. Holy cow, that team, um, we were incredible. Um, uh-huh. we put one through 15 on the roster and then even our three alternates, um, some of the best people I've ever been around. Um, but it was, I think one of the first times that I was on a team where, you know, don't get me wrong in college, we all have the goal to go to the world series, but we didn't just all have a goal to win a gold medal. Like everyone put in the same hard work yeah. every single day. So it was being around people who wanted it as bad as I did. Um, maybe even more since they were a little bit older and had gone through other things that I hadn't yet, but like, everyone just hard work, work ethic, all of it was, was apparent day in and day out. Was it a bit of a dream team vibe? Is that comparable? Um, I think looking back, it was, I don't think at the time when we were going through it, we really thought of ourselves that way. We knew we Uh had all the tools. Um, coach Kendra constantly told us we were going to work hard and we were going to be a well-oiled machine by the time we got over there to where, you know, it would look easy, um, because we had done all the hard work and, 
um, you know, that's exactly what happened. We got over there, but we had spent nine months touring, training. I mean, and when I talk about touring and training, it's like playing a game on Friday night, waking up Saturday, going in conditioning, showering, getting on the bus, driving somewhere else, playing Saturday night, getting up Sunday morning, showering, getting on the bus. We might stop halfway and condition again, get on the bus, finish our drive. Like we were lifting, conditioning, all of it. I still remember, I don't know what state we were in, but we stopped at some soccer fields and conditioned in the middle of a drive one time. And I just remember we were all like, what? Like they had told us to have practice clothes on, but we thought that meant because when we were getting there, we were going straight to the field. No, like we stopped and did uh, shuttles at a soccer field for stop. What was the, what, when the bus came to a stop, were you, were you all like, Oh, what are we doing? And coach was just like, get off. Well, I think, you know, as we pulled up, they were like, all right, this is our conditioning for the day. And then when we get there in three hours, we'll practice. And so we were all like, okay, but that's, you know, that was, that was the nature of the beast. And, um, you know, we didn't really question it. We did what they, they asked us to do. And I think, to me, that was the biggest thing, especially being the youngest, is just soaking up and watching these older players be able to buy in and not hesitate and say, all right, let's go. And so I followed suit, like, let's go. Um, I didn't know any different. So for me, it seemed pretty normal. <laughs> um, but now I look back and I'm like, man, we put in, we laid some groundwork for that to happen. So once, once the last out was made of, of the gold medal game, um, that's probably one of the few times in my life where you look back and you're like, every drop of sweat was worth worth this right now. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anybody that took issue with how young you were on that team? Not really. Um, I think they had all, well, so backtrack just a little bit. I had played against the 2000 team um, when they were on the Central Park to Sydney tour. Um, at that point in time, I think they all thought I was a cocky little punk. Um, <laughs> And I really wasn't, I had a great game against them, but it was more like pure excitement and yeah. oh my God, this is really happening um, coming out of me versus being cocky because it was by no means that I think I was going to have a great performance that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of knew of me after that. And then, um, but I think by the time the 2014 was named, we'd all been in tryouts for at least two years together, if not three um, they had seen what I was doing in college. And so I don't think they took any issue to it. And in fact, I know Lori Harrigan took me under her wing, um, kind of was going to be like, okay, I know you're young, but I'm going to try to help you speed this along. So you're not, you know, we're not using the excuse that you're young and that's why, you know, something doesn't go right or whatever. So, um, no one ever really, I mean, they would, they would joke with me. I mean, I didn't turn 21 until we were halfway through tour um, but they would joke with me sometimes about how young I was, but, um, I don't think any of them ever took issue with it. And in fact, you know, it wasn't other than jokes here and there, it wasn't brought up too much unless they saw me studying. And then I got ribbed because I was the only one having to do some stuff. <laughs> Love that. Uh, was it a memorable 21st birthday? Um, unfortunately not. Well, I shouldn't say that it was memorable in the fact. So my mom worked with Lori and coach to um we were in Italy actually at the time we had like a three-week stint in Italy Uh where we were only playing five games but we were playing a double header on the day after my birthday so okay so could not have been too memorable (laughs) Um, we uh woke up and I think we did some training in the morning and then we had lunch and at lunch um walked in and my mom had sent a bunch of pictures to Lori from like birth till 21, obviously. And they were all over the cafeteria. And wow. We got a cake made. And um, I should have known because coach was asking random questions the day before. Like, hey, Kat, did you eat dog food when you were younger? And I was like, what are you talking what? about? There's a picture of me like, I don't know if I'm feeding the dog or playing with the dog's food, but I'm squatted down by the dog bowl. And like, it just came once, it, once I saw the pictures, I'm like, this is what you were talking about. Was it memorable? Yes. Was it memorable in the way most people's 21st birthdays are? No. <laughs> but hey, neither was your college career. And I think that's important for, for young people to uh, recognize is that like your life doesn't have to look like the person next to you. And in fact, when you're you have high expectations for yourself and big dreams, big goals, it usually doesn't. And embrace that instead of, you know, trying to blend in. Transitioning now to 2008, what did the 2008 loss to Japan in the gold medal game teach you 
about yourself as a competitor, as a person, about the sport? What lessons did you take away from that game? Um, I think the biggest thing, well, one, it was very apparent very quickly after that game that I don't like losing whatsoever. Um, I was probably a little bit of a sore loser that game just because I had convinced myself that if we lost that game, which why you would think about losing that game before that game, I don't know, but um, that I would be forever known as the girl who lost the gold medal for the U.S. Like that is all that stuck in my head for the longest time after that. And so immediately after the game, um, we have to go to a press conference and Bustos and I were both there. Um, neither one of us had our medal on. Um, and, uh, you know, of course she's not wearing hers, so I feel okay with not wearing mine. Um, the problem lied when someone asked me where it was and I said, I don't know, in the locker room somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously I wasn't very gracious in defeat. And, um, I think it takes people a while to understand that while yes, we won a gold medal, it's hard to process that because we didn't really win a gold medal in our minds. We, or win a silver medal. I mean, we didn't really win a silver medal. We lost a gold medal. And so, um, it's funny, Brene Brown just had a podcast and she talked about this and whoever she had on her as her guest talked about the research that people who win a silver are obviously the least gracious become a little bit more depressed when they get home, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, but if, unless you're in a race, like, you know, track swimming, most of us don't win the silver, we lose the gold. So that's a different mindset. Um, but coming home, I think what I did learn is that, um, I wasn't, I was not really equipped at the time coming home and dealing with, um, a loss of that magnitude, um, to figure out how to rebound. Um, I'm not sure my, I had separated my identity as who I am from what I do. Um, to be honest, because yeah, I carried that, the weight of that around for a long, long time. And to be honest, I think I carried it around way longer than anybody wanted to talk about it. So, um, why I held it up to that most much importance is, Um, I don't want to say beyond me. I I know why, because at that point it was probably the biggest adversity I had gone through on the softball field. Um, But I think it made me have to really quick revamp. Okay. You have to know who you are versus what you do. And like, well, yes, you play softball and you've been a softball player. There's more to you than that. And um, I was able to kind of, you know, finally get out of a little funk and be able to reflect on that and then move forward after that and know that, you know, one game doesn't define you. It doesn't define your career. Um, and again, like I said, not very many people wanted to talk about it after that. I've probably talked about it more now that we're going to the Olympics again than um, any time in between. But mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a great learning experience. And um, I don't know. I would still rather it not happen that way. <laughs> but it definitely has given me some moments to be able to share with other athletes how I rebounded from that and how – um, I did let my identity get lost in what I was doing mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, just keeping them separate and being able to, okay, yeah, yes, you can let the loss weigh heavy on you, but you can continue um, to live life as the person you are. Um, because yeah, it's wasn't something I think, I don't think I ever thought about my identity being separate before that. I wonder then what your perspective is now of the investment being made, made into professional athletes and their mental health. Um, I think it's awesome, to be honest. I mean, this will probably be actually the first time I've ever admitted it publicly, but I realized six months ago that I've suffered from anxiety probably most of my life. Um, It doesn't show up on the softball field, but it shows up um, quite a bit off of it. And to be honest, now that I look back, it's probably some of those moments where people think I'm I'm rude or abrasive or whatever might have been anxiety coming in at certain Mm -hmm. points, Um, not necessarily after losses, but just in general life. Um, and I actually would never have thought about it except for, um, Ali Carta, who's my roommate on the national team had posted a blog about anxiety, like a week and a half before. And I was just in a state where I finally looked at my husband and I was like, I'm pretty sure I have anxiety. Like, can mm-hmm. it happen after one situation? He was like, one situation. He was like, you've always had it. And I was <laughs> like, excuse me. And then of course you talk to friends and family and yeah, like, 95% of people in my circle were like, oh yeah, you've just always had ways to cope with it. And after this summer, um, just the heightened of everything going on, like I right. just was coping as well. And so I think 
um, again, people think because you're on the field and you can produce on the field, there's no way you have anxiety. Well, no, the field's my escape from all of it. So it doesn't right. show up there, but in other settings, it shows up and, um, yeah, for, I think for them, but I love the fact that athletes are coming forward and talking about it and there's more investment going into it because I think the other part of that is if you're someone who, you know, for me, my work training, softball, playing, whatever it is, that's like, I love that. Like that's my escape from the real world, so to speak. Um, even though that is my real world, but it's my escape from having to pay bills and, and do all that. Right. Um, but sometimes that grind can be so daunting. It can be so mundane and repetitive that you get into a state where the passion and what people think, oh, like you're getting, not us, but male athletes, you're getting paid millions. Why would you complain about having to, well, you go do the same thing every day for nine months and let me, let me see if like you're still way passionate about it, you know? Right, right. Um, so I think it's awesome that people are starting to understand, you know, your athletes are humans and people. And um, the process of, of what we go through sometimes can take a toll on you mentally. And, you know, if you don't get a reprieve from it, then it just continues to compound. Super high functional people, I feel like, earn all of this success, whether it's on the field or off or in whatever industry, because their coping mechanism is to distract from the anxiety with something else. Yep. So a lot of people that I know who who struggle with anxiety too are super high functional and, and very successful. And they almost like trick their minds into thinking like they don't have it or they're not dealing with it. Yeah. I think, I think the other thing is like some of my coping mechanism was um, like, I only stay in my, I only would stay in my small circle. So especially mm -hmm. in college, like I had a small circle of four or five teammates that I hung out with and I didn't get outside of that too often. Mm -hmm. but that explains it because I didn't want to have to deal with, thought like what someone new would think of me or if they didn't like me or those kind of like, if you didn't already know me, like I just was how I was. And, right. um, and I, you know, talking to some of my friends, they're like, well, that's just you. I'm like, it's not, it is me, but it's me because I don't, I don't deal well with what just happened. Right. Um, right. Because yeah, since, you know, since embracing it, um, life has become a lot better, um, in knowing that, you know, there's, there's help, there's solutions. Um, Absolutely. That, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to continue to live that way. Right. But yeah, it, it takes some really like looking at yourself. And like you said, I have complete high functioning. Like I posted something on social media the other day that was like the high functioning anxiety. And I was the whole list. I was like, yep, 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 yep. You talked about just subtly in a few different answers, sacrifices that female athletes make and even referencing their male counterparts and in, in the paychecks that they're receiving. Can you elaborate a little bit on the sacrifice that female athletes do make? And especially within the sport of softball, like you said earlier in our conversation that in order to keep this sport going, you do need the present athletes to make this sacrifice. What is that sacrifice that they need to make? Yeah. So, um, you know, with the current situation of, of our professional softball, um, you know, especially when the NPF plays, it's, you know, May to August. And then now with athletes unlimited, you have August through October, which are through October 1st, which is nice. Um, but neither one of those make it to where you can not work from October to the following May. Right. And so I think, um, a lot of the sacrifices figuring out what, what jobs you can do, what places you can coach, um, how many clinics, lessons, et cetera, you need to be doing in order to be able to afford to continue to play. I mean, I hate to say we have to afford to play, but we do. Um, and then on top of it, it's, it's sacrificing those months. I mean, that's summer vacation for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I've missed enough vacations. I've missed enough weddings. I've missed plenty of anything and everything. My stepdaughter's dance recitals and dance competitions because, I have softball and unfortunately, thankfully, um, my friends and family understand that, but, um, unfortunately, you know, you have to sometimes put that into perspective and figure out, you know, what is it that's important. And for me, it was to be able to continue to play and it was continue to do what people before me did and give those after me an avenue to be able to live out their dreams. And so the sacrifice is really, I mean, it's a, I hate to say it's financial, but it is, um, it's being able to figure out how to, 
how to afford living the life you want to live while continuing to play and, mm. and knowing that, you know, if you're not coaching, then you might be putting clinics and things together, which take you other places and away from family even more. Um, you know, for me, like towards the end of my professional career before 2015, it was just being away from, from home, my dogs, you name it. Like I was tired of relocating for three and a half months out of, out of every year. And, um, and then just the time constraints on trying to be a coach while still getting your bullpen in, getting your lifting in, getting your running in, like it, you know, trying to put all that into the day while still coach your kids and be in the office. It's like, go home and you have no, you have no time to do anything else. Um, so the sacrifice comes with time. It comes with money. Um, it's unfortunately, and then, you know, I'm not gonna lie. It's not fun to be on social media sometimes and have all the trolls that don't think we should be playing sports, um, or telling us that our sport isn't as exciting. I'm like, softball is way more exciting. I love baseball. I will watch baseball till I'm blue in the face, but softball is still way more exciting to watch than baseball. So you can't tell me our sport's not exciting to watch. That's a great transition into this next question. The hype around college softball is huge. People love college softball, but then there's unfortunately this drop-off when it comes to the MPF and professional softball. From your perspective, what's the reason for that? Where, where do you think that comes from? You know, I think some of it comes from, again, as I challenge the younger professional players and then even, you know, that co- the kids coming out of college here soon, like some of it will be some of those top athletes from college have other aspirations. And I do not, if you have an aspiration to go be a doctor, a dentist, whatever, I mean, by all means, go do your, uh, your schooling and, and whatever else you need to do to, to make your dreams come true in that avenue. Mm-hmm. But some of them just see the the sacrifices you do have to make the difficulty some people have, and they just decide to go a different route. And um, so I think part of it is, is financial, you know, coming out of college, you're not, you're not earning even 30, 35,000 a lot of times. Right. I mean, that's probably minimal for anybody to be able to live a year. Brenna Moss, I I did a story on last year and talking about what players are making. I think she was making $10,000, or teammates of hers were making 10,000. It's like, that's nothing. That's nothing. No, I can backtrack. One of my first years in Rockford, we had a girl that came on through the, not walk on tryouts, but the open tryouts. So she was not drafted. She was, and I think she was making 500 to $1,000 for the whole summer. I think a lot of times the money that can be earned is, is a different situation. And then, um, and then on top of it, just some of them get out of school and are just tired of, tired of the grind to be honest mm-hmm. um and then I think the other aspect is when you're a professional everything's done on your own you know you have to go find a trainer you have to make sure you're following a program um you know right now I lift on my own every day um, I have a program given to me by my trainer but he's busy at Texas State training three four teams right now so he doesn't have time to see me mm-hmm. um, the one downfall of leaving my job I don't get to <laughs> go see him every day <laughs> um, but if you don't upkeep that, then your your body starts to falter too. And I think a lot of times I see and hear athletes that a couple of years out of college, like, oh, my body hurt. I'm like, well, you're not training anymore. That's why your body hurts. Like, right. You continue to train in order to stay in shape and stay peak. Um, so it just becomes, you know, something that I think male athletes get because one, baseball, you go through the minor leagues, somebody starts to map it out for you. NBA, you're drafted, you get in there, they map it out for you. Like you need, by the time camp starts, like you need to be here. So I think they get mapped out plans to where we get drafted and it's like, here, go figure out life on your own and how you're going to make everything work. Like there's not a, there's not a plan or there's not people saying, Hey, you know what you need to, I know you don't want someone telling you, you have to go back squat 165 pounds anymore, but you're going to have to. You said that you will retire following the 2021 Olympics, which were supposed to be the 2020 Olympics, whether it's in July or October, you're not quite sure yet. That was a quote that I read in ESPN. If for whatever reason, the Olympics were to be postponed again, is there a possibility you won't retire? Um, if they got postponed again, that would be, that's a, that's a dig deep question. Cause, um, depending on when they got postponed might be whether I don't retire or not. Um, the, the overlooming thing is my husband and I have been talking about having a kid. So 
Um, I do want to have that hopefully preferably before I'm 40. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, you know, obviously that got put off another 12 months this year. So I don't know um, if I would make it to 2022. Um, But as of now, they've said the Olympics are a go with or without COVID. So I cross my fingers that that stays true. And then, um, yeah, I think the decision will be as if to whether I play athletes limited or not again after um, Tokyo next fall. Um, waiting on John and Jonathan to call me and talk about that. But um, it's, it was something that when I left there, I was very excited about. So mm-hmm. um, I'll probably say that the percentage of me playing again is greater than me not playing again. Um, but I also have to make sure everything is covered here at home for me to be gone for another six weeks. Absolutely. So fans can look forward to seeing Kat Osterman back out there pitching for all of us to enjoy. Lastly, this is a question I just want to ask all of my guests that come on Equal Play. What is your hope for the next generation of females in sport? Uh, My hope is that we have a professional avenue for multiple sports. Obviously, WNBA is going on and soccer has started to, to take off, but Athletes Unlimited being able to do softball, volleyball, lacrosse, but whatever our platform is that we're able to do it and be treated professionally, be seen professionally, and then obviously um, have the pay be professional. Um, You know, Athletes Unlimited did a good job of that this year, but um, still for for female athletes to be able to truly be a professional athlete and not a part-time professional athlete and a part-time something else. Kat. Perfectly said. A great quote to end this conversation on. I appreciate you so much for making this time for me, for coming on Equal Play and talking about all these important things that we got to discuss. So thank you so much. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.